Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome me in joining back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, the great Monsignor Charles Pope. <laughs> well, listen, I want to um, thank you for coming. I, the title of the, of the talk uh, was given to me, um, unworthy of Christ, a biblical defense of Catholic communion. Now, the emphasis is going to fall on this question of the worthy reception uh, of, um, of the Holy Communion. This is not particularly a talk that's designed to go through every biblical text that shows the true presence, but just a very, since this is, a, again, a biblically-based presentation with references also to the sacred tradition, you know, just a quick reminder to you, and I believe most of you, thanks be to God, because we, we've been through this crisis in the church today. A lot of you have really worked hard at mastering the fundamental teachings uh, at a much better level. And so what I'm about to say would be of just a very quick review, a reminder of the true presence of the, of the Lord in the Eucharist. So again, clearly, we, we begin with the Lord himself who said, uh, this, he says, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body. And likewise, over the cup, this is my blood, this is the blood of my blood and the, and the covenant, and so on. Uh, so now, uh, so we begin there, just the simple words of the Lord. Hmm? Now, St. Paul, of course, takes up the theme. Uh, he writes in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, in the 10th chapter, he says that the, the bread that we break, is it not in fact a partaking of the, of the body of Christ? Is it the, the cup that we drink, is it not in fact a partaking of the, of the blood of Christ? Hmm? So again, simply just reminding them of the basic faith of the community. Hmm? Now again, we'll, we, we would also look to uh, the Lucan tradition, where the road on the road to Emmaus, the, the disciples are, are with Jesus, and they begin, and they say that, um, uh, that uh, they, they, they walk with Jesus. They did not really recognize him. As you know, they finally said, well, look, Lord, it's late. Come, come stay with us. You know, my name Nobiscum Domine. Come stay with us. It's, it's late. And so he went in, and at the meal, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. See? And with that, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight, as if to say to them, you will no longer see me in the way you've been used to seeing me, you know, as we see each other with our eyes of flesh uh, and so on. But rather now you will see me, you will encounter me in the Eucharist and in the liturgy, where I will preside, I will bless you, I will preach to you, and I will feed you with my body and blood. This is now how you will see me. And they ran back to the apostles to tell them all that they had experienced and how they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. So here too, all of these traditions. Now there are some though who would argue, well look, uh, some of the Protestants say, well now no, look, look, um, Jesus also says, I am the door, I'm the gate. He says, uh, uh, I'm the vine, and so on. He didn't mean that literally. Why do you say he meant that this is my body? Why do you think he meant that literally? I mean, are you expecting to find Jesus as a wooden thing hanging on hinges? And would you bow down in adoration? And so some of the Protestants respond to us in this way, amen? You know, this is uh, common. And again, 
we would need to have an answer to that because there are times where the Lord speaks metaphorically or uses allegory and imagery and signs, but we all know, of course, the answer to this question is in John 6, right? John 6, where the Lord is very clearly setting forth a very literal understanding of his presence in the Eucharist, right? And so again, he says, I am the bread that has come down from heaven for you to eat and not die. He equates himself to the manna that was in the wilderness, doesn't he? Remember how they were in the wilderness. They had been baptized into Moses, as St. Paul said. They came through the Red Sea and baptized into Moses. Well, but now they had a journey to make across the desert, and there's no food. But God fed them, and they called it the bread of the angels. They called it, they called it the bread of heaven. They also called it manna, which is a Hebrew word, which means you've you got to scratch your head when you say it. Manu, what is this? It was mysterious to them. But it was what sustained them on their journey. And so Jesus says, as it was for them, as they journeyed across the desert, so now you who are baptized into me must have food for your journey, and I will be your food. I am now the living bread come down from heaven for you to eat and not die. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. At this, the Jews quarreled and grumbled, and they murmured, murmured. We all know murmuring. Hmm? Hmm. And Jesus says, does this offend you? What if you were to see me going to where I, ascending to where I was before? What if you were to understand that I'm God who is speaking to you? And he goes on to say, let me solemnly assure you, amen, amen, I say to you. Now, anytime Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to you, put on your listening ears, you see. Something important is coming, it's, all right? And he said, unless, strong word now, unless, you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So the Jewish people think, is this guy mean this literally? We're supposed to chew on his flesh? Yes. And Jesus says, hey guys, come on. I'm only talking in terms of image or metaphor. I don't mean it literally. That's not what he did at all. In fact, not only does he repeat himself, but he doubles down if you've studied the Greek text, right? He goes from a, a polite word for eating, phagein, hmm? To the Greek word trogon, or tro, it means to gnaw. It's a very impolite way of eating, right? <laughs> like you pull the drumstick and you eat it out of the side of your mouth. You rip it out, see? And that's gnawing on the flesh. He says, you must gnaw on my flesh. Very impolite, shocking, horrifying. And yet he insists on it. He does not back down. He doubles down. And therefore... Many left him that day and would no longer follow. And then he turns to them and he turns to you. Will you also leave me? And Peter answers, Lord, this is hard. <laughs> no, he says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else will we go? See, and thanks be to God. See, But you see, it is a hard saying, isn't it? It's a hard saying. Especially for people who were never used to uh, drinking or eating blood of any sort, let alone human blood. And then the idea of eating flesh and but again, Jesus doesn't take the edge off. He really makes it more edgy. Now, that's why, looking back to those other texts where he says, this is my body, this is my blood, we don't mean or understand him in our Catholic tradition simply to be speaking like when he says, I'm the vine, or I'm the door, and so on. You see the vision? So you've got to keep the whole biblical tradition together. And they very radically believed in the true presence of Christ. So this is our teaching, fundamentally, on the true presence of of Christ in the Eucharist. Now, it's a hard saying in the sense that for them it was hard to understand, you know, eating flesh and drinking blood, human flesh and blood. But for us it's hard in this sense that we're very visual, aren't we? 
And um, our five senses are very important for how we understand what we're looking at or experiencing. Now Thomas, of course, takes up that theme, doesn't he, in the beautiful hymn, Adorote Devote, right? He says, Visus gustus tactus in te faliteru, sed auditu toto creditur. So he says this, that sight and taste and touch in you are all deceived, Lord, but only the hearing is safely believed. Only the hearing is safely believed. So of your five senses, ignore four and listen to one. And that's not a bad idea because what does St. Paul say? Faith comes by seeing? No. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. So Thomas goes on to say, after he says that line, he says, Credo quid quid dixit dei filius. I believe whatever the Son of God tells me and nothing is more true than this word that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist that we receive. See? So again, you have to understand in terms of biblical theology that we're not proof texters as Catholics. We've always tried to steep our teaching richly and deeply in the whole of Scripture, never just picking one little text out of thin air and saying, now I proved the point. Because again, you could get that response. Hey, he says, this is my body, we're done here. Well, we're not quite done because he also says, I'm the door, I'm the vine, I'm the... I'm the gate for the sheep, I'm the shepherd, you know, and so on. You get the idea. But in the richer Catholic way of appreciating Scripture, we take all the Scriptures and we line them up, and the evidence is overwhelming that it was never understood as anything other than critically and quite literally understood that Jesus Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. Mysteriously, in a way hid from our eyes, but really, truly, and substantially present. All right? And that's a quick discourse, or, you know, kind of a discourse, if you will, on the overall scriptural evidence of the, uh, of the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. All right? So that's where I'll leave that. Now, why do I put that as a, a, a fundamental groundwork here? Well, because St. Paul would also then go on to say, and we're going to look at this text in more detail tonight, but he says, look, whoever receives the Eucharist unworthily eats and drinks or sins against the body of the Lord. Now notice, he doesn't, if, if it was just a symbol, eating and drinking that symbol unworthily might not be a good idea, but you wouldn't be sinning against the body of the Lord. Let's say you really hate me. You can't stand me, and you put a picture of me up on your dartboard, or you tear it to shreds and you stomp on it. That's that guy, Charles Pope. See, that arrogant priest, see? Now, you might be disrespectful. I'm like, my feelings are really hurt. But you haven't harmed me. That's not my body. That's just a picture of me. That's not me. See, You haven't sinned against my body. You have, may have sinned against me in some abstract sense in terms of my, my dignity, my dignity. But you have not harmed my body. But you see now, if it was really me you were throwing darts at and trying to tear up and cut up and stomp on, well, now you're hurting my body. Now, you see, that's why St. Paul says, whoever eats and drinks the body of the Lord unworthily it's, it, you know, sins against the body of the Lord. See, not just some sense of the Lord, but his body, because that's really, truly his body and his blood. Are you, so you, you see the vision here. All of these scriptures come together and are fundamentally centered around an understanding of the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Now, that is not really my main topic for tonight or next week. The main topic is going to be, again, to set forth for you the need and the necessity and the teaching on the worthy reception of Holy Communion. We're going to delve into Scripture tonight, and we're also going to delve into sacred tradition and other sources. So 
I got to get used to using this thing. Here we go with great trepidation. Now, this would be an overall outline of the talk both this week and next week, all right? So, God willing, and the cricks don't rise, I'll be here with you next week, right? And um, we're going to probably get down to close to... Um, I'm supposed to be able to press this little thing here. Yeah, we're probably going to get down close to this thing. What do we mean by communion tonight? That would be kind of my goal. However, if the time runs out and we don't get that far, we don't get that far. So, we're going to try to end tonight, you know, on time and... So on, but generally, I want to try to go through tonight a remote inquiry. I want, to quote, I want to read to you a selection from Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, a fairly reputable gentleman uh, who uh, became Pope, but it was written before he was Pope. But he kind of gives us, I think, a good background uh, for some of the reasons why we have some of the issues that we do have today, where people do not really respect the Eucharist and, and also uh, object that non-Catholics can't receive and so on. So that's what I mean by the remote inquiry. Is the Eucharist a sinner's meal or a sacred meal? And we'll look at that. And then some root instructions from Scripture. We're going to look at some of the scriptural sources about worthy communion. Uh, and we'll look at these as the slides go by. And um, you, know, you can probably get the notes the, uh, also on the, on, online, as you were told. And then uh, some related instructions. Now, therefore, what do we mean by the word communion? This is going to help us to understand a little bit why we say that if someone is not a practicing Catholic and um, in, in a state of grace, they ought not approach. See, Well, we begin with the idea, what do we mean by communion? Isn't it just a kind of a happy meal and we're all like brotherhood and we're all for one and one for all? Or is there something richer going on? in this concept of what we call in the Greek koinonia, huh? a deep reverent communion. So also then, what do we mean by mortal sin? We're going to see that mortal sin should have us stay back from communion. But what do we mean by mortal sin? And is it as simple as coming up with a list? And it's not that simple, okay? But we do need to have a clarity, but also a sense that there's going to be some discernment to make about what we mean by mortal sin. And your conscience is an important thing. Uh, in this regard too, all right? So the church isn't just going to just simply give a list. Because you know, for example, that there's big lies and little lies. So we can't just say, well, lying is a mortal sin. Well, it, it might be if it's a big matter, but it might not be if it's, well, how do you like my new hairdo? <laughs> so you get the idea. So we'll, we'll look at some of those factors. Now, please, I'm not going to blow your heads you know, apart by giving you endless distinctions. We ought to be able to pretty quickly come to a conclusion about whether we're in a state of serious sin. This is not to muddy the waters. I think a lot of people say, oh, it's so hard to figure, there's so many factors. It's not that hard. You kind of know. You know. Okay, but we're, we, there are some criteria, though, to, re, to observe. So that's what I mean by what is mortal sin. And then we're going to look at some of these relevant issues that cause a lot of anger and division and frustration today in the church. So, for example, this whole question that's going on, the whole, all the oxygen in the synod got sucked into this issue of divorced and remarried people receiving communion, right? A significant issue, um, but nevertheless, we, we ought to say, well, what does Scripture teach us, see, on this? We need to look at that, all right? And then we also need to look at the question of some public sinners um, and uh, other not not notable dissenters approaching communion. And there are people who dissent from our teachings, claiming to be a loyal Catholic, publicly presenting themselves for communion. And so again, what, uh, what, is really, what does the church say and teach about this? And uh, we're going to look at those things and, and try to understand uh, why we ought to, uh, uh, you know, how we conclude rightly about these matters. It's very controversial because it's pretty clear that a lot of our bishops have chosen to kind of not enforce Canon 915 and have chosen to kind of stay back from any uh, entrance into rather 
controversial statements saying that some people ought not to approach communion. And that's uh, it's, it's creating a lot of uh, trouble in the church because there's differences of views. And uh, although the church teaching is rather clear on this matter, so we'll look at that too. But in a respectful way, respectful of our bishops, right? We don't. This is not a. I'm not going to stand up here like some renegade and say those crazy bishops, all right? Because that's not uh, that's not what I do as a priest, and it's not what any of us should do. But we should, I think, though, realize that very often, reform in the church does not come from guys like me. I'm not, I'm not a bishop, but I mean, you know, clergy is what I mean, right? It comes from y'all and from religious life. That's usually the sources of great reform in the church. Religious life and the, uh, uh, the good lay people all throughout the world, such as yourselves. And look at you, you're here tonight to listen to a crazy priest. And you could be home watching the latest episode of whatever. All right, but you're here. So reform begins in rooms like this, right? And... Um, as we gently but firmly call our bishops, you know, to, uh, uh, to hear our concerns. So I think that's the way we should approach what is somewhat controversial today, because some of our bishops, in fact, many of them, have chosen to kind of just sort of stay back from this entire issue of worthy communion and kind of hope you all have it figured out, okay? Okay, and by the way, pastors too. You know, really, one of the things, one of Cardinal World's main hopes for me is that Holy Comfort of St. Cyprian, which is my parish, is not in his inbox. <laughs> Charles, you go take care of those people. You teach them the faith, and so I don't have to worry about that. See, and So sometimes when we complain about bishops, we're really complaining about pastors. And um, it's, uh, it's a sad thing. Many, many people are not teaching on these matters. So that's what we'll get into next week mainly. Some of the controversy and some of the relevant issues. All right, with that in mind, let's get right into then our first area here, what I'm calling the remote uh, inquiry. All right, so uh, let's see here. Now, I want to read from Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, this is a quote, uh, a rather lengthy quote in several parts from his book. Uh, it's from his collected works. This is uh, volume 11 of his collected works. It's interesting, it's volume 11, but it's the first one to be published. Why? Well, because he insisted on it. He wanted the he wanted the book on his liturgical teachings to be written first, even though his editors thought that the liturgy should be put uh, toward the uh, middle or the end of his works. Uh, all these other things like soteriology and uh, protology and eschatology and all those other ologies, should, which form the foundation for our beautiful liturgy, should ultimately be uh, first. He, because he knows the critical issues today, asked that his Volume 11 of his collected works, which you can get on Ignatius.com, Ignatius Press, uh, wants that published first, because right now he knows that's the most urgent thing. All right? With that in mind, I want to then give a little bit of a background. I think one of the reasons that we're in a, a time of <clears throat> struggle with the idea and the understanding of worthy communion and the idea of communion at all is because of what he says here. So let's begin. You have the quote up there. If you can't read it, just... I'm going, to, I'm going to read it out loud now, okay? So nowadays, this is Cardinal Ratzinger who wrote, and he wrote this probably back, as I recall, in um, the, um, the late 90s, all right? Maybe, maybe the very early 200s or 2000s. Nowadays, some New Testament scholars say that the Eucharist is the continuation of the meals with sinners that Jesus had held, a notion with far-reaching consequences. It would mean that the Eucharist is the sinner's banquet, where Jesus sat at the table, 
that the Eucharist is the public gesture by which we ought then to invite everyone without exception. The logic of this is expressed in a far-reaching criticism then of the church's Eucharist, since it implies that the Eucharist cannot be conditional on anything. Not depending on denomination, not even on baptism, it is necessarily to be an open table where everyone may come to encounter the universal God. Now, what is he referring to here in this quote when he talks about, you know, the sinner's meal? You know how Jesus had a lot of... He, he broke bread with some strange folks. <laughs> he was found in some strange company, kind of like us tonight, right? Um, he was known to be among sinners. He was found in their company. He would even, and so even so, the Pharisees and the scribes and other religions, this, your, your teacher welcomes sinners and eats with them. And you might say, well, why are they so uptight about that? You know? Well, remember, for, for us, eating is a kind of a, you throw back a hamburger and you're done with it. You know, you might have the little grace, bless us, Lord, you know, now that that's done, throw back the hamburger and you're done. Or we nuke something, we microwave it and we're done. But for people in the ancient world, especially the primary meal of the day was a sacred event. It was sacred, it was holy. We were going to partake of what God had given us. And so the idea that you would eat with Gentiles, or you would eat with sinners, or you would eat with some, anything that, or anyone that would defile your gathering was just a little shocking. Now, we don't think of eating as sacred, per se. We ought to, but we don't. How many, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I mean, how many people even have your family sit down to meals together today? I mean, we have so lost any notion that a meal is a powerful, important, and sacred time for communion with each other and for just the sake, it's a very sacred gathering. We've largely lost that. Even now Thanksgiving has been just pretty much thrown in the trash. Quick, get that thing done so you can get into the store. The very last vestige of it went away about three years ago in our culture, right? All these stores started opening. Is nothing sacred? No, nothing is sacred. Sex is not sacred. Marriage is not sacred. Food is not sacred. The human body is not sacred. Nothing is really that sacred in our culture. And that's kind of where we are today. So the idea that they're shocked that Jesus eats a meal with, quote, sinners, sort of escapes us. Well, why would they be so upset about that? But you see, that's the reason. So, Jesus is kind of breaking a mold, but he rebukes them and he says, look, you Pharisees, you scribes, this is what you ought to be doing. You're supposed to be reaching out to sinners. You're supposed to find out and listen to them, hear their struggles, and then, uh-oh, look out, teach them. Not just say, oh, they're bad, they're bad. Get out there and preach to them and teach them. Get out of the temple and out of the synagogue for a minute. Go meet a few folks and teach them. Sick people need a doctor. People who are well don't need a doctor. I've come to call not the, those who are well. I've not to come call the righteous, but I've come to call those who are unrighteous, who need help. I'm a doctor. So you see the idea. Now, so Jesus is pushing the envelope a bit here. But you see, that's what, they, that's what uh, some people say that, okay, therefore, Jesus ate meals with sinners. He, uh, he conducted these sinners' banquets, or table fellowship, if you will, with sinners. It was a common thing that people noted about him. Now, therefore, that's what the Mass is. Why are you limiting who can go to Holy Communion? That's what the Cardinal is saying here. That's what Pope Benedict is saying here in this first paragraph. So, are we clear on that? Any? Okay. So let's move on to the next part of the quote. He continues, 
<clears throat> so the idea is, again, remember, the idea is that, well, maybe the Eucharist is a sinner's meal, where everybody then should be invited, and there's no questions asked. Jesus didn't ask questions. He invited sinners. He ate with them, and then certainly he would teach them, but he never asked questions. He, he, he just, and so maybe we should just conduct the Mass that way. That's the premise that a lot of people bring to a discussion like this. So therefore, however tempting, says uh, Pope Benedict here as, as Cardinal Ratzinger, however tempting the idea may be that the Eucharist is a sinner's meal, it contradicts what we find in the Bible. Jesus' Last Supper was not one of those meals that he held with, quote, publicans and sinners, but rather the Last Supper he made subject to the basic form of the Passover that implies that the meal was held in a family setting. Thus he kept it with his new family, the twelve, and with those whose feet he washed, whom he had prepared by his word and by the cleansing of absolution to receive a blood relationship with him, to become one body with him. So the cardinal and later Pope Benedict just simply hears this theory that the Mass should be like all of the sinner's meals that Jesus conducted. Come one, come all. Don't worry about whether you're Catholic. Don't worry about whether you're Lutheran or Protestant or even baptized at all. Don't worry about whether you're full of sin. Just come one, come all, and we're going to welcome you and we're going to give you the host. Okay? That's the, the premise of that thinking is the sinner's meals, the table fellowship that Jesus had. And Pope Benedict says that premise is completely wrong. That is not what the Mass is, because that's not what the Last Supper was. The Last Supper, which where the Mass comes from, was not one of those. It was a Passover meal, and Passover meals were conducted only within the family. Now, sometimes every family was directed to have a Passover meal. If they were very poor, they might be able to get together with a neighboring family because they couldn't afford the lamb. All right, but fundamentally, the family gathers. The family gathers. So, this is what we mean then by a Passover meal. It's not a come one, come all. It is a family meal. Okay? And it is also a sacred meal. The Passover was not treated lightly. You brought out the best. You had certain utensils and vessels and things that you would never use for an ordinary meal. Special cups, special things were done. Especially the, the food, special foods were eaten and so on. This was a very unique and special meal. Are, we, are you praying with me? To which the Lord invites those who have become one with Him, who certainly still remain weak sinners. Somebody say amen. amen. But yet have given their hand to Jesus and have become part of His family. Okay? So you see how different the Passover setting is from these table fellowships or sinners meals that the Lord had. Okay, And it's from that Passover meal that the Last Supper was conducted, and that we get the Mass. And then finally the Cardinal concludes, this is why, from the beginning, the Eucharist has been preceded by a discernment that we're going to look at from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, chapter 11. The teaching of the Twelve Apostles, also called the Didache, is also one of the oldest writings outside the New Testament. And from the beginning of the second century, it takes up this apostolic tradition and has the priest just before distributing the sacrament, the Didache had the priest say, whoever is holy, let him approach. Whoever is not, let him do penance. And this is from Cardinal Ratzinger's Collected Works, Volume 11, page 273 and following. So if you don't have a, a copy, that's a rather thick tome, 
But if uh, this is something you'd like to study a little bit, not just this, but all of his liturgical writings and teachings, go sell everything you have and buy a copy. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, again, what he's saying here is that the reception of the Eucharist from the beginning has been preceded by a discernment. And we're going to look at that text in just a minute where Paul says, if one is going to receive, let them first of all, let them first of all discern. You know, let them consider and, and so receive worthily. For if one eats and drinks without discerning, see, they drink judgment, not blessing, judgment on themselves, okay? So we're going to look at that. So, all right then? But any, uh, just before we enter into this, now I don't have time to entertain long questions here, but just any quick clarifying questions, a real, like, hey, you know, I didn't get that one word or point. Okay, because there'll be time, hopefully, for a little bit of questions at the end, okay? All right, so with that in mind, now I, wa I wanted to go to that background because I think one of the problems that's lurking behind a lot of the anger that some people express against the Catholic Church that we have so-called closed communion uh, rather than open communion, we're, we're, it's so inhospitable. You know, you come into your church and you won't let me receive communion, see? And we're going to talk more about that when we get down to another stage here, but I want to just say that um, when we get down here to, uh, you know, what do we mean by communion? But, you know, Cardinal Whirl one day told a story. He said, I was on the airplane, and all of his stories take place on airplanes for some reason, but, <laughs> but um, I said, Cardinal, you've got to get another setting, you know, for some of these. But, but uh, he said, uh, somebody said, why can't I receive communion in your church? I think that's rude. He said, oh, you can receive communion in my church. Well, I can, yeah, as, as long as you acknowledge that I'm your bishop. <laughs> So, there, but part of the background is that, that people bring is they think of the Eucharist as basically, and a lot of scripture scholarship in the last century had emphasized that the Mass was a meal, a meal, a meal. But not just any meal. Jesus had lots of meals with sinners, and they were informal. And, you know, so all of your formality needs to go away, all of your exclusions, all of your rules, all that stuff. Jesus didn't have any of those rules. He just ate with publicans, tax collectors, sinners. Doesn't he know what kind of a woman that is? And that's how Jesus had his meals. And that's the premise of their thinking. A lot of the Protestants especially. And that begins to influence, of course, our culture because we live in a largely Protestant nation. Well, can we even say that anymore? <laughs> Who we live in a largely secular nation, but you get the point. Um, and that has influenced in turn a lot of Catholics who then get upset that we exclude their brother-in-law or their wife or their husband from coming to communion because they're not Catholic, or we sometimes remind people that you shouldn't come up if you're aware of mortal sin. Jesus didn't care about all that stuff because they're thinking of the sinner's meals, not the Passover, not the Last Supper, and not the Mass, which is not a sinner's meal, it is a sacred meal, all right? So I, I wanted to lay that out for you as a kind of a premise. Why do so many people think this way? Well, it goes back almost 100 years ago into biblical scholarship and some of the attitudes that people began. And that began to percolate down from the academy into the thinking in the churches and into the thinking of people then everywhere, okay? And it's, it's, it's happened. So at least that's Cardinal Ratzinger. I think he's a pretty... Pretty insightful guy. I think uh, it's a pretty good uh, reminder. Why do some people think differently than the church on this matter? Now, with that in mind, we're going to take a look now at some root instructions from Scripture. So the first key text, and you know it, uh, but I want to read it. So Paul writes 11, 1 Corinthians 11. So then, 
Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body of the Lord. Now everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we may not be finally condemned with the world. All right. Whoever eats and drinks the body and the blood of the Lord unworthily, unworthily. Hmm? Now, um, this is one of the reasons why we speak of the worthy reception of communion. Now, immediately there's a, an objection. But wait, wait, we always say, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come to me. You know, so we're using the word worthy here, not in an absolute sense, but within a range, so that we're at least, what we mean by this, traditionally we've meant is that we're not aware of very serious or mortal sin. And we'll talk more about that as a category. We're, none of us are absolutely worthy, right? But you, you, you get the idea. What, what we mean here by worthy is, is the sort of the equivocal, not the univocal sense of the word. We're not saying absolutely worthy, but rather in, 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 within that proper range. We're not aware of serious or mortal sin. Okay? We, that, that would cut us off from the communion we claim to have when we approach Holy Communion. Because then our communion becomes a lie. We don't really have that communion. We come up and we say... We hear the body of Christ and we say amen, but we, it's a lie. We don't really have communion because through serious sin we have cut ourselves off from that communion. So we must first be restored to it so that our amen is authentic. Otherwise, again, we enter into a judgment by lying before God and God's people, claiming we have communion where we don't. Okay? Now, so we, what we mean then by the worthy reception is not an absolute worthiness, but that worthiness that we call as far as we're aware, free of mortal sin. Okay? Now, again, the St. Paul says, whoever eats and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty, guilty, of sinning against the body of the Lord. Now, we've already talked about that in terms of the true presence, right? But we sin against the body of the Lord by receiving Him unworthily. That's very strong, isn't it? It isn't just, well, you did a bad thing. You sinned against the body of the Lord. And that's not to be taken lightly. Now, by the way, somebody pointed this out to me, and I, I'm going to do a little more research, but that this verse is actually omitted when it comes up in the lectionary. It's omitted. They just skip this verse, and they jump down to just discerning the body. And so a lot of Catholics are under the mistaken impression, well, it doesn't mean, what do you mean worthy? I don't know what I'm talking about. You've got to discern the body. You see, I believe that it's really Jesus. That's all I need to do. I say it really is Jesus, and I'm going to trot on up. And you say the body of Christ... And um, <clears throat> then um, I say amen, which just basically means, yeah, that's right, I believe that, that doctrine. But there's more to worthy reception, and your amen means more than that. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about what do we mean by communion. But it's more than just, yes, I believe that this is truly the body and blood of Christ, but rather my amen also indicates that I have this communion with him through faith, through his grace, which is saved me from sin, or at least recently I've been confessed, and that's, that has washed me of that sin. And likewise, I have communion with his teachings, with his body, the church. You're not just having communion with the head of the church, you're having communion with the body of the church. Last time I checked, a head and a body are supposed to be together, right? And if they're not, we're in trouble, right? 
So you say, me and Jesus are just swell. It's just a church I can't stand. Well, you have just separated the head and the body. The church is the body of Christ. So, uh, what are you talking about? No, it's the body of Christ. It is the living, active, vital presence of Jesus Christ in the world today. And you, through baptism, are members of that body, as long as you're in a state of grace. Now, that's not just some vague notion. That's truth. Now, it'd be like this. I, I might have given some of you this example before, but some people say the most awful things. I'm swell with Jesus. I just can't stand the church. It's sort of like, you know, I like you. You're, you're, you're a swell person. You're just okay. You're great. You know, you're fine. I just can't stand your awful, ugly, horrible, terrible body. Oh, you are so ugly to look at. I just, it was just awful to even, you, you smell bad. You look bad. I just can't stand your ugly, awful body. But you're a swell person. I think you're great. We wouldn't talk to a human being that way. Well, why do we speak of Jesus that way? Because people don't think of the church as his body, do they? Or how about another image? The church is Christ's bride. Oh, I think, hey, so I go to one of my buddies and say, hey, man, you and I go back, man, we're brothers. Ah, it's just that, that wife of yours, though, boy, is she ugly. She's awful. She's terrible. She's a, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I'm a, I've just offended my friend. If he loves his wife, you don't talk like that. You know, you don't do that. But people do that because they don't think of the church as the bride of Christ or the body of Christ. Now, when it comes to communion, therefore, the amen is not just a, yeah, yeah, I think that's really the body of Christ, not just a symbol, good for me, I'm in. It, it means that, but it means more than that. It means I'm in communion with the Lord by not being cut off through sin or, uh, shall we say, any, anything that would have separated me from him. I also accept what he teaches through his body, the church. Okay, now, somebody who's brought into full communion with the church at the Easter Vigil says something like this, I believe all that the Catholic Church, the Holy Catholic Church, believes and professes and teaches to be revealed by God. I believe all that the Holy Catholic Church believes, teaches, and professes to be revealed by God. And then they're received into full communion. And the next thing, they're confirmed, and they receive Holy Communion at the Easter Vigil. But you see that testimony, right? It's a quick creedal statement. I don't just believe in certain basic, I believe all. I am in communion. So, so all of these are ways of understanding what we would call the worthy reception that Paul talks about here, and there's a discernment to make. And we're going to read again here uh, another quote from Pope Benedict later. All right, well, let me move on a bit, but notice he says, if you receive unworthily, you eat and drink condemnation or judgment upon yourself, not blessing. Now, do you begin to see, therefore, that when the church calls us to worthy reception, we are being very careful. It is an act of charity. It is not rude. It is not mean. It is not a bunch of rules. It is a very deep concern for the soul of every individual that they not bring judgment on themselves. You say, well, uh, what do you say that? Because it says it right here in the text. Paul's saying, whoever eats and drinks the body of the Lord unworthily, see, eats and drinks condemnation or judgment upon themselves. All right. Strong words, but they're Paul's. If you have a problem with that, talk to Paul. He said it, I didn't. Talk to the Holy Spirit who gave it to Paul. He said it, I didn't. The church ought to tell you what God told you. Oh, that, that upsets people, so we won't say it. And sadly, that's enough for a lot of priests. 
Now, I'm going to just tell you, if you're a medical doctor and you realize that a person cannot tolerate penicillin and you prescribe it because penicillin is good for people and people get well with penicillin, a lot of people think penicillin is just great, and you give penicillin to a person who is not apt to receive it and they die, that's malpractice and you're going to be sued. And that's the way you have to sort of understand unworthy communion. It's kind of like a medicine that's good in itself but can cause great harm to a person who is not apt able to receive it. And this is almost never taught today. Because a lot of priests are scared. They want to upset people. And I, I taught it on Sunday for the Feast of Corpus Christi, and sure enough, I had several people lying up, I want to talk to you. <laughs> I didn't like what you said. I don't particularly care that you mentioned fornication. I live with my girlfriend. We're all we're close, and it's great, and we think it's of God. And I said, no. I just talked to God. He said fornication is a sin. I didn't. You know, talk to him. You know, but, I mean, I was kind, but, you know, we have to be clear, you see? We have to be clear. Now, by the way, most people didn't get upset, but, you know, there were a few, right? It's going to happen. You say things that kind of shock people a little bit, it gets them upset. I get that. But we have to say it and get people used to the truth. Sometimes when the lights first come on, you know, people are like, ugh, right? But you're, you adjust, and eventually you love the light. Wasn't that what Deacon was just telling us about his, his journey in faith? And I've had a similar journey where there were times where I found church teaching obnoxious. But now I love it. I love the light. You get used to the light. And so that's what the church has to do, you see. It is a very clear teaching here that warns us that judgment comes upon a person who receives unworthily, not blessing. So we have an obligation to warn people, Okay. Now, therefore, um, let's go on and take another one. Now, by the way, this next text I'm going to look at with you is just a kind of an illustration that's only theoretical. It's um, this passage from, uh, from um, uh, what happened to Judas at the Last Supper. Now, I'm not entirely sure that Judas did receive communion at the Last Supper. I don't know if he did or didn't. There's all kinds of different opinions. Um, the Lord speaks about he'll dip the morsel. In. I don't think the Lord was dipping the Holy Communion. So it's, it's not clear, but it still serves to illustrate what could happen to a person um, who uh, might receive communion unworthily and how judgment, and it could become almost like a poison within them. So it says here, they're at the Last Supper, and the apostles ask, Lord, who is it that will betray you? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, look at this, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. And he went out. And uh, this, one of my favorite lines in John's Gospel is the way it ends there. And it was night. And it was night. When Judas goes out to betray the Lord, he's not talking about the time of day. All right? <laughs> he's talking about now that battle between light and darkness has reached its pinnacle. And the darkness is full. All right? And it won't come back till resurrection morning. All right. But again, you see what happens. He eats and Satan enters into him. Now, I'm not trying to say that everybody who receives unworthily, Satan enters them and they're possessed. Because bring the exorcist. But just to show you that to some who receive unworthily judgment and many bad things, and Paul says that he puts it in the, more of a physical language. He says, that's why some of you are sick. That's why some of you have even died because you're receiving communion unworthily, see? But he talks about, again, an ill effect to the Eucharist that comes upon a person who does not receive worthily, okay? All right. 
Now, with that in mind, um, let's move on to uh, a few other thoughts here. Um, um, uh, yeah, this is just another one. It's not related to the Eucharist per se, but it is certainly still a basic theme that the Lord gives us, right? And so the Lord says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and, uh, before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Okay, and we'll leave, I won't give the whole rest of the quote there. You can see the rest of it. But the point is that the Lord is saying, look, if you are coming to the altar and you realize that you're, you've done something pretty wrong to one of your brethren, you know, you've sinned against them and it's serious, you know, don't, don't come up. Leave, go be reconciled and then come back. Come back, but go first. Hear that word first? Is that not unclear? That's not an unclear word, is it? Go first. First. And then and be reconciled, and then come back, and then come back. You see, so this is again. It's not per se exactly about the Eucharist, but it's that basic theme. Don't go before the Lord to worship Him, all full of sin. You ought to be reconciled. The Lord says, "Look, I, I haven't become deaf that I can't hear your prayer, but your your sin has put a, a barrier between you and me." He says that in the book of Isaiah. So sin, if you will, kind of severs the kind of communion that's necessary for the blessings to have effect. All right? Now, let's go on to a couple of other uh, documents. Canon 916, uh, which I said some of the bishops are being accused of not enforcing. Right? But again, it says there, right there, Canon 916, um, a person who is conscious of grave sin is not to celebrate Mass. That would likely be referring to a priest, Right? or to receive the body of the Lord without prior sacramental confession, unless a grave reason is present and there's no opportunity of confessing. And again, that might apply to a priest, right, who has the obligation to say Mass, but may have uh, had some serious sin between that and this last confession. He might still have to go and say Mass, only in those cases. But generally, too, a priest should confess regularly if he's aware of mortal sins. He shouldn't, uh, unless he has to, celebrate Mass. Uh, and he should, you know, try to be reconciled first, right? Okay, so... Um, in this case, the person is to be mindful of the obligation to make a perfect act of contrition, including the intention of confessing uh, as soon as possible. All right? uh, but again, it, 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 says, it says that again in the, in the canon that one is not to uh, approach the, you know, the table of the Lord until they have uh, first of all confessed. No one is to receive the body and the blood of the Lord uh, in an unworthy state. Now, ca the Catechism from 1385 says something similar, right? Um, to respond to this invitation, namely to go to the communion, we must prepare ourselves for so great and holy a sacrament. And St. Paul urges us to examine our conscience. And whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now let a man examine himself and so eat and drink. So he's just quoting again from our text. Finally, it concludes here, anyone conscious of grave sin must receive the sacrament of reconciliation before coming to communion. Okay, Not unclear. Now, you might say, what do we mean by grace? And we're going to get to that, but you get the point. Not unclear, right? All right? It's a pretty clear teaching. Right? But like any clear teaching, if it's never taught, <laughs> it doesn't have much of an effect. <laughs> or if it's never, people are never reminded of it, you see? All right. Now, then finally, uh, in this first section that I've been looking with here, um, I want to just say that um, this, again, is Cardinal Ratzinger. And he wrote a, a oh, I'm sorry, um, this is from the Didache. I'm sorry, this little quote from the Didache. Uh, if anyone is holy, uh, let him approach the altar. If anyone is not, so let him repent. Maranatha, amen, from the Didache, number 10. That was written about 90 to 110 A.D., somewhere in a very early document, right? 
So this isn't some late medieval thing of a medieval church with all of its rules. It's right there at the beginning that if someone isn't worthy, don't approach. Let them repent first. Or again, uh, from uh, the idea of excluding non-Catholics from the Eucharist. Uh, again, from the same document, the Didache. Um, it says here that, um, uh, but let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they have been baptized into the name of the, in the name of the Lord. For concerning this also, the Lord said, give not that which is holy to the dogs. Didache 9. Now, I don't have time to develop that whole biblical text for you, but don't get upset that the Lord called people dogs. Please don't do that. Now, we are so sensitive, so hypersensitive today, you know, about things. It is not saying they are dogs. It's saying, though, that people can become like dogs. So you could take holy meat, consecrated meat, you know, Passover, from the Passover, and throw it to the dogs, and they'd tear it apart like ordinary meat, right? They would not discern anything special about that meat. And so you would never, for some reason, you couldn't partake of blessed food. You would never throw it to the dogs. You'd burn it first. Because they're not discerning. They don't know the difference between holy meat and unholy meat, you know? And they would just tear it apart like anything. Or swine, don't put your pearls before swine. Well, pigs only value what they can eat. You could put gold bricks, you could put diamonds or pearls. <laughs> Can't eat it? They just trample it underfoot like a piece of dirt, right? So, and sometimes people can be like that. Our holiest, most beautiful things, people say, what's that junky thing? Get that out of here. They have no sense of it. If, 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 you know, sometimes if they don't know. So the Lord isn't saying they are pigs or they are dogs, but that sometimes people can be like that. They can become like that. So the Lord is using imagery here. And like, oh, he's calling me a dog. I didn't know he's not calling you a dog. He's saying that you could be like a dog if you're not careful. See? But you're not a dog. You're human. So come to discern. And the difference between holy food and ordinary food, between beauty and that which is not beautiful. You are a human. You're not. You see, that's the idea. That's the invitation. But again, you get the idea. Now, then we want to go here to this next quote from Cardinal Ratzinger, who wrote a memo to Cardinal uh, McCarrick regarding the worthy reception of communion. We're going to look at that more next week, that memo on the worthiness to receive Holy Communion. Now, he says here, this is the Cardinal speaking now. Presenting oneself to receive Holy Communion should be a conscious decision based on a reasoned judgment concerning one's worthiness to do so, according to the Church's objective criteria. Asking such questions as, am I in full communion with the Catholic Church? Or maybe I'm dissenting against the teaching of abortion. Or maybe I'm dissenting against, you know, we're not talking about just some vague thing, but a really fundamental teaching to the Church. You're not in full communion if that's the case, right? So, am I in full communion with the Catholic Church? Or, am I guilty of grave sin? Have I incurred a penalty, excommunication or interdict, rare today, but possible, that forbids me to receive Holy Communion? Have I prepared myself by fasting for at least an hour? The practice of indiscriminately presenting oneself to receive Holy Communion merely as a consequence of being present at Mass is an abuse that must be corrected. Unfortunately, too many clergy have just filed that one away. All right, nice, thank you. File that away. And they've never gone to the pulpit and done that. See? So part of the reason I was asked to come here today is that you're, you know, the directors of this institute have said this is an important teaching to reacquaint the people of God with, you see, in a loving but a clear way. And I've, I'm hoping tonight that you're, you're experiencing it that way. It, it, it's, it's heavy, but I hope you hear the love, right? It's like a doctor who know, knows that you can't tolerate penicillin, so I'm not going to tell you to take it. 
let's find some other thing for you. Let's get it corrected. Let's get the problem corrected so that you can receive the blessing. And so pastors of souls don't just say, don't come, but they're saying, listen, how about confession? Or if, let's say we're in a marriage situation or something that can't be resolved instantly, well, let's work to try to resolve it, see? And let's work to keep you closest to the Lord as possible. But receiving communion for you isn't a good idea right now, given what Scripture says. And that is not rude, it is not impolite, it is not hateful, it is a loving, concerned response of a church that has heard a word from God and has to tell you that word, even if it's a hard word. Okay? And that's the vision. So, with that in mind, I want to just kind of remind you where we've been so far. And I've got about maybe five more minutes, I guess, for about what, but um, before we need to formally end, maybe open up for questions. But we did a little bit of a remote inquiry where we looked at the Cardinal's reminder that part of this thinking about communion that we sort of desacralized it is that people began to equate it with the sinner's meal and that came because of biblical scholarship in Germany and other places that filtered down into the universities and especially the Protestants began to take up this theme that Eucharist is just a sinner's meal okay where the Lord says come one come all but that is not the Christian tradition it's not he did have those meals but that's not what it was. But the, that mistaken notion is what gives rise to a lot of informality, you know, attitudes of informality about the Eucharist, attitudes also that uh, would take away the idea that it's an altar and calls it a table, and all these sorts of attitudes today, including the question of the idea of being seriously prepared for communion and free of grave sin. And that's the mistaken notion. We tried to deal with that. Then we looked at some of the root structures from Scripture so far. We'll be looking at some more Scriptures, but you got a few of them today, all right? And then uh, we looked here at some related, and uh, you know, we're, I just want to just introduce this third thing, and then I'm done for today. What do we mean uh, by a communion, all right? Now, I've already sort of introduced it for you, but I want to say to you that one of the dangers um, is that most people today have what I would call a kind of me and Jesus notion of Holy Communion. Um, and yes, it is you and Jesus, <laughs> It is, in fact. But to be united with Jesus is not just to be united with him alone, because he has a body. He's the head of the body, the church. And head and body are together. And so you want to be united with the whole Christ. So when we talk about holy communion, it isn't just my unity with Jesus, and I can't stand you, and stay away from me, and I'm not going to shake your hand and go away, and this is my private chapel. And that's, We have some of this attitude today, even among more traditional Catholics. I'm not saying you've got to like the sign of peace, but you get the point. <laughs> but he has a body. See? And there's some people who say, I don't got to go to no church. I just sit here and pray and take a walk in the woods. I'll bet you they don't take a walk in the woods either. But, uh, or I can see it on TV or whatever. No, you can't. You've got to be with his body. His body and he are together. The head and the body are together. So your communion is not just with Christ alone as the head but rather with his members. See, a rich... Now, by the way, fellowship or communion among the members does not mean coffee clutches and coffee and donuts after Mass. It's deeper, it's richer. Koinonia is a rich, deep relationship where we are teaching each other, holding each other accountable, lifting each other up, encouraging each other, admonishing one another, and truly walking in faith together. That's what's meant by the communion that we're supposed to have. Right? Amen? So that's the vision. Now, 
Then, to be united then is more than just a me and Jesus concept, Holy Communion. And then secondly, to be united then to Jesus is also to be united with his body, the church. It is also to be united with his mind and his heart. Therefore, his teachings, his values, and the priorities of his heart. Now, some people say, well, Jesus doesn't care today if I live with my girlfriend. Really? He says, even to look at a woman with lust is to commit adultery with your, her in your heart. Much more so than just go ahead and outright live with her and shack up. So yes, he does care. He actually said that. Oh, well, See, we, gotta, we can't have some vague me and Jesus attitude. He's cool with me, and I'm cool with him. It's got to be rooted in what he actually said, did, and taught that was handed on to us in the scriptures and the tradition and clarified for us by the magisterium of the church. And communion means all of that. Okay, so with that in mind, I just want to read a concluding state statement, and then we'll, uh, I'll be done for today. Um, I wrote this in one of my longer articles that are available for you, but I want to just read a paragraph that I wrote. Many modern people surely prefer a no-questions-asked invitation to all who wish to come. That's the attitude most people have about Mass and communion. We, we moderns love this notion of unity, but to a large degree it is a contrived unity that overlooks truth. Um, yes, it overlooks the truth necessary for honest, real, and substantive, substantive unity. Such a notion of communion, this come one, come all, you know, kind of vague stuff, is shallow at best and a lie at worst. How can people approach the Eucharist, the sacrament of holy communion and unity, and say amen when they differ with the church, Christ's body, over essentials such as that baptism is necessary, that there are seven sacraments, that the Pope is the successor of Peter, that he is the vicar of Christ on earth, that homosexual acts and fornication and adultery are gravely sinful, that women cannot be admitted to holy orders, that there is in fact a priesthood, that scripture must be read in the light of the magisterium, and on and on and on. And it's for this reason as well that we don't think that Protestants should be invited to Holy Communion. Why? Not because we hate them, we respect the fact that they're not ready to say amen to all those things that I just read to you. Now, I hope one day they will. But until, I'm not going to say, you come on up here and say amen, and we're going to pretend you mean something that you don't mean. That's not respectful. They don't, many Protestants don't agree with some of those things I just read. And many other dissenting Catholics don't agree. And what we need to start saying to them is, look, out of respect for you, I'm not going to ask you to come up and say amen to something you're not ready to say amen. I'm not going to put social pressure on you. I'm not going to make any... I'm just going to say to you, you're not ready to say that amen, and I respect that. Let's talk. Let's walk. Let's see if we can resolve some of this. And so you see the vision here. It's not just about mortal sin now, but it is also about being in communion with the church that we need to explore and talk a little bit about more next time when we meet. So I'm, I'm finished for tonight, but we'll continue on from about here to, we're gonna, we, do, we do need to talk a little bit. What do we mean by mortal sin? What are some of the criteria? And then we just need to dive right into some of those relevant issues about what about those who are divorced and remarried? What about public sinners and dissenters? And is there any way forward to kind of bring some of the, uh, this teaching to bear a little bit more uh, so that it's lived more fully in the church today? Is there a way forward? Because right now our, our bishops have kind of, you know, and, and the priests aren't saying a lot about this, and it's not really being enforced, so to speak. So with all that in mind, I don't say that by accusation. I simply say we need to look at some of the reasons and say, is there a way forward where all of us as the people of God can once again come together on this type of a teaching? So that's what we'll look at next week. Bless you. Thank you for your patience.
What is holy and unholy meat? Uh, you mean as I refer to it in the talk? Well, uh, you might recall that um, for the Jewish people, um, the, uh, they would often sacrifice animals. Um, and the, um, uh, they would bring, bring, bring the animal to the temple, and the temple would then um, be presented to the priest, and the priest would then butcher the animal, uh, putting, burning part of it on the fire, saving part of it for the temple, and returning part of it to the individual family. Um, and this is why, why, one of the reasons why we eat or receive Holy Communion. It didn't just come out of the blue, you know, so that when we partake of the sacrifice, we actually receive part of it back. So we give and we receive back. And that goes back to the ancient temple practice. Likewise, you would never take like the lamb that you had for a Passover meal, very holy and blessed, in that sense, and throw that out the back door to the dogs for scraps. So that's the idea of what we mean by holy meat. What would you say to someone who is in, say, an invalid marriage, and they read uh, the passage in Corinthians where it says, let someone examine themselves, and they say, I've examined myself, I think I'm ready to receive communion. What would you say to that person? Well, we'll talk about that more next week. So I'll just say very briefly tonight this, simply that, well, uh, we discern, but we don't just, uh, we're, we, our conscience needs to be informed. We can't just say, well, I think it's fine. Um, I think we have, to, we have to, you know, take seriously what Jesus himself teaches. If a person divorces and marries another, they're committing adultery. That's his word, it's not mine. And we'll look more at that next week. There's any number of scriptures where Jesus has a very firm line on this. And so we have to, if we can't find some possible grounds for annulment, we have to simply conclude that they're in a situation that uh, Scripture itself says. So they can discern all they want, but they can still have an erroneous conscience, and they should continue discerning a little more. O oh Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come to me, but speak the words of comfort. My spirit heal shall be. Usually I have that in my mind when I'm going to receive the Eucharist. Um, frequently I do uh, have that. Uh, and the, the priest says, a body of Christ. And I take that as the word, uh, but speak the word of comfort. Amen. Speak the word of comfort, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, again, remember, we want to understand the word worthy. We can understand it in what we might call the univocal or the equivocal sense. Um, univocal is kind of an, an absolute or a literalistic meaning of a word, and it's understood in its absolute and unqualified sense. Um, so I might say... Uh, you're my, uh, you're my brother. If you really were my bro brother, we had the same mother or same father. You know, we're really brothers. That's more the univocal sense of brother. But I could also say brethren or my brothers or my brothers and sisters. But I mean that more equivocally. I mean it in a more broad sense, right? So we're worthy in the sense that we're not absolutely worthy. You see, we are still sinners. We do fall short. But we, we speak of worthiness in this sense more equivocally, namely that I have at least that degree of worthiness which is required, which is that I'm not aware or conscious of mortal sin. And then if that's the case, our venial sins can be healed by Holy Communion, as St. Thomas and others teach, that it is actually a healing effect. So in that sense, say the word of comfort and my spirit healed shall be. But that would apply to venial rather than mortal sin. Monsignor, we're getting a question online from Richard. And he's asking, why doesn't every pastor, this is a paraphrase because it was kind of long, but why doesn't every pastor inform twice a year Easter and Christmas Catholics before Mass begins of the requirements to participate in the Holy Eucharist? Is, is there not doing so a sin of omission? It could be. It could be. Uh, 
I think it depends on the parish um, and how many visitors there might be. I do that at funerals. I don't, when I, whenever it's time for communion at a funeral mass, I'm presuming an awful lot of people there are not Catholic. And so I say, those of you who are practicing Catholics and in a state of grace are invited to come forward at this time to receive Holy Communion. Um, so I'm clear in, in those settings. Maybe, uh, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we should be more clear. I, don't, uh, I suppose, though, you're right. Not only do we have visitors, but we might have a lot of Catholics. I think been to Mass since last Easter. And maybe that's a good reminder. Uh, so I, I take that to heart. My question is sort of along the same lines. Um, I get the sense that maybe you're saying, or, or there's a sense that maybe priests aren't saying this because there's sort of some fear on their part. And so I'm wondering whether in seminaries this is addressed. How to, you know, I mean, it's really supported and addressed how to say things and why to say things that are hard. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I can't say what's, what's being said in seminaries now. It was never taught to me in seminary. I mean, I'm not saying we never covered these texts, but we weren't really encouraged or strongly admonished to remind people of this. Um, but that, I, was, I was in seminary 25 years ago, 30 years ago, <laughs> long time. So maybe things have changed. However, I will say, please pray for priests. We are human, and we fall short. We, we also give way to fear. And, you know, most priests are not all that afraid of the bishop throwing them in a bad parish. They're really more afraid of Mrs. Murphy being upset with them. Really. Nobody likes to be in tension with people. People like to be liked, and priests are human. We struggle with this. And so I'm the first to say, hey, mea culpa. So most of you who know me know me to be pretty, you know, I'm, but nevertheless, I, all of us struggle to find that courage to speak things that are sometimes hard for people to hear. And we get used to it, but pray for us because we are human. And most of, by the way, most of you and your families struggle to say sometimes things around the dinner table that really need to be said, but oh, we're not talking about that this Thanksgiving. <laughs> I know Johnny and Mary are shacked up, but we're not talking about that. And we should talk about that. Maybe not at the table, but you get the idea. So, okay. uh, wouldn't I follow a very good uh, lecture? I have a question about uh, politicians who support abortion or promote abortion. So what's the procedure of the church now? I mean, do they really, shouldn't, I mean, I know they shouldn't have communion, but do they really openly say, okay, you cannot have communion if you're supporting abortion? Or So, so how's, how's it going now? Well, we will talk about that more next week. Uh, I will just say quickly tonight, by way of a quick answer to that, um, I really believe that the first line of defense doesn't need to be the bishops. It really needs to be their pastors. So if a Nancy Pelosi or you know, those who are very, very obviously out there like this have not heard from their pastors, they should. I will say to you very vaguely and generally that I have had people, I'm not even going to say this person I'm talking about was a politician, but I've had people in my parlor who I've had to say to them, not only should you not receive communion, but if you don't change and repent, you'll probably go to hell. And it needs to be that clear. Um, I really think that uh, we priests have got to do a better job of talking. And sometimes when they're a big benefactor or they're very powerful or there's influence involved, again, priests are human. And I don't mean to make that as an excuse. I'm just saying these are the dynamics that set up. Ooh, you know, this is a big benefactor and they're in a bad marriage and I got to tell them, well, let me not tell them. Well, maybe tomorrow, next week, and then they forget. And so... I would say that uh, we'll talk more about that next week, but I believe that, yes, those who are 
in certain categories who are very publicly dissenting and not only po possibly even procuring abortion if they vote to fund it might be, might be in a very, very serious state, uh, both morally and, and not apt to receive communion. And, but how we do that, whether we do it publicly or privately and so on, those are prudential judgments. Monsignor, we have a question coming in online from Kathleen Bauman who asks, um, many Protestants absolutely believe that they are receiving Christ in their church and don't need the Catholic Church's way. Uh, many of them are convinced that they are spiritually in communion with Jesus. So how, how can we show them the way to what we believe as Catholics? Well, that's a, a whole other almost topic uh, or talk. But look, let's say that some, some very, very limited, but some Protestants do have real communion. If there is, for some reason, a, a, a Catholic priest who happened to have left the Catholic Church, you know, there might be. But generally speaking, we're going to say that, no, they, they can't have truly the presence of Christ because they don't have a valid priesthood. It really does take a validly ordained priest to uh, be configured to Christ, to be able to say the words, this is my body, this is my blood. Now, that said, um, um, we don't want to say they have nothing going on, see. As the church often says, there are elements of the truth, you see, in all these churches. And there are many beautiful things in the churches. And there is a type of communion that they share with Christ. Many of them are very beautifully devoted to Jesus. And they have a beautiful walk. And they, they have a beautiful love for Scripture. And again, how many of them have come to us now and blessed us, you know, and joined the Catholic Church and have brought that beautiful personal walk with Jesus and Scripture. So I think what we, we need to begin to do is to have that kind of a conversation with them that tries to show that the, the, the actual true presence of Christ really does require, you know, a, uh, a valid priesthood. And the other issue that's even deeper, I think, that, that sort of hits them even before the communion question is authority. Who, how do I know this man, some of them say this woman, has authority to preach the gospel to me. Who gave them the authority to preach and teach in Jesus' name? Now, the Catholic Church has a very clear answer to that question. We have a literal, physical connection to the apostles through the laying on of hands. I say the Catholic Church, I mean all the branches of the Catholic Church, right? All, all of the uh, Eastern rites and so on. All of them, and I would also say the Orthodox. You know, they have a, there's a literal laying on of hands that brings authority forward from the apostles down to our time, literally, physically, through the laying on of hands. We, only those churches, the, the, the name of the Catholic and all the Eastern you know, rites and so on, all, all related to, the, to, the, to that church, and then to some degree also the Orthodox, although they're sadly separated from us in some matters, but they go back to that apostolic time. They have valid sacraments. Now, before we get into the question of sacramental theology, I found the more fruitful discussion is usually to begin with the question of authority, and a lot of Protestants have found their way to the Catholic Church first on that question of authority to preach and teach in Jesus' name. He who hears you, hears me. How do I know this person who's standing here in that pulpit this Sunday has that authority? And they begin to ask those questions, and they can't come up with a reasonable answer. And that's where you begin, and then you move from there to other questions of the validity of sacraments. But that's just my experience, but that would be my answer. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7135.
1-800-273-8255. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.